In this episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, filled with mystery and intrigue, I fly solo and I talk through things like product myths and that famous quote from Henry Ford about building a faster horse. Talk through some thoughts around how people think about selling their company. What would I do if I sold it? What is life-changing money? And I dive into a bunch of other topics in this Rob solo adventure. But first, I wanted to let you know that MicroConf Remote is happening today. MicroConf Remote V2, which is a take on the 8-bit video game theme. If you have not checked out this platform, gather.town, that's what we're running this version of Remote on. It's pretty amazing, and I think it's going to be good. And right now, I'm probably doing a, as this comes out, doing a a live keynote with one of the several amazing speakers we have. We're going to be covering five topics specific to early stage SaaS and gaining traction. So it's for folks who are pre, let's say pre-10K MRR. And we dig into Ruben Gomez's AppSumo deal that he did, complete with numbers and advice and how he thought about it and you know do's and don'ts, pros and cons, all that. We look at Derek Reimer's product hunt launch that happened a few months ago. We look at some content marketing. We look at, at several topics that if you're not in there, you should head to microconfremote.com. You can still buy tickets. And whether you just watch the keynotes or just watch the videos, whether you participate in the hallway track in the gather.town environment, it's really a unique event and props again to producer Xander for putting it all together. Hope to see you there. And finally, before I dive into today's episode, Startups for the Rest of Us has 899 worldwide ratings, and I'm trying to get to 1,000. It would be amazing if you could give us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever greater podcasts are sold. Our most recent review, and that's different than a rating, right? A rating, if you just click five stars, I'm, I'm forever indebted to you. A review is when people write some text. And these are the things that I read late at night when I'm close to crying myself to sleep. And I use these to, uh, to keep me happy and to keep me motivated and focused on pushing this forward. The subject line of this review is fundamental. I've enjoyed listening to this podcast for a few years now without running a SaaS. It'll still take a while, but I know that after we've launched, I'll think back to this podcast together with MicroConf as providing the fundamentals for getting started. I really appreciate the mix between tactics and strategy and combined with humor. <laughs> really? So there's what you're, so you're the one that thinks that the podcast is funny. Combined with humor. I, I appreciate that. This is a go-to podcast for me. The humor is included in the podcast. He specifically calls it out. This is great. Thanks, John Erling from Sweden. Thank you so much, John Erling. And if you have not left us a rating or review, I'd really appreciate it. So now let me dive into the first topic I want to cover today. I'm calling this product myths. I've always been annoyed with the quotes from the Steve Jobses and the Henry Fords, where it's like, if it, I don't do focus groups. If I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have wanted a faster horse. And instead I get built them a car. Here's why I hate those quotes. Number one, it's unlikely you have the resources that Steve Jobs and Henry Ford did. By the time Steve Jobs was I think it was, he was 20, he was worth a million. By the time he was 21, he was worth 10 million. By the time he was 22, he was worth 100 million. And a lot of that was on the back of this incredible once in a generation invention that Steve Wozniak had designed. It was called the Apple One. And that's what made them have all this amazingness. After that, Steve Jobs then proceeded to launch failure after failure from the Lisa to the original Macintosh, which eventually became successful, but it was a train wreck when it launched, to the Apple Newton, fail, 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 
it was running the company so poorly that he got kicked out. The board voted him out. And, you know, he went off. And if you read the book, I think it's called Becoming Steve Jobs. It's about the, a lot about the interim years and how he matured during that time. And then he did figure himself out. When he came back to Apple in the late 90s, he was amazing. And he was an amazing, not only a business person, but a product person. Before that, yes, he was a good marketer. Yes, he could talk. Yes, he could stare at people and, and convince them to do things that they were, you know, maybe shouldn't do or they were scared to do. He could, you would say it's either persuasion, intimidation or something. But he was not a great product person in the early days. So it was, it was uh, Wozniak. And obviously Jobs learned this and did become that over time. All that said, these luminaries are quoted and, and I feel like it's this myth of should you listen to your customers or not? There's an in-between because when Henry Ford says that people would have asked for a faster horse, that's like saying, I asked my customers what they wanted and they said that they want a button in my interface to download a CSV and then make changes and re-upload it. So are you going to give them exactly what they want or are you going to put your product hat on, maybe your vision hat, your founder gut feel hat and say, that's a dumb idea. There's a way easier way to do that. Why don't I just build a lightweight kind of Excel manipulation widget within my app? And I'm, this is just an example, right? I'm not saying that's the, be the better or the worst way to do it. But if you're a product person, you never take customer suggestions and build what they want because you wind up with crap software. You wind up with a million settings. You wind up with terrible UX. You wind up with terrible UI because customers are not product people. They're not experts for the most part in general. So when Henry Ford says they were asking for a faster horse... I put on my visionary, my product hat, and I think, what are they actually, what's the job to be done? Well, they want something that moves faster than a horse. So what can do that? Well, trains can do that these days, right? Locomotives in the, what is this, 1905, 1910, locomotives can do that. So can we build a locomotive that runs on something that's not on rails, right? I mean, that, that's the type of innovation that, that Ford put into place. So to take his quote and to act like, don't listen to customers at all, I think is a grave misuse of that as product people. And that instead of taking exactly verbatim, literally what a customer said and building that into your app, there's a balance here, right? It's that product vision that you have. Where do I want my product to go? And how do I want it to feel? And how do I want it to be used? What do I want to build in it and not build in it? What do I want it to become and not become? Because I'll tell you, in the early days of Drip, people wanted us to build affiliate management software into it because a competitor had it. They wanted us to build shopping cart into landing pages. There were all these things that other competitors had built. And we were opinionated enough that we said our opinion is that we should integrate with best of breed. And so we had 35 tier one integrations by the time we were, you know, year and a half, two years into Drip. And that was the we take. That was our opinionated stance on whether we're going to make this thing an all-in-one, I'll say monstrosity, not that all all-in-ones are monstrosities, but that's what it felt like is that we would be a worst in class and we'd have five tools built into one, or we could be best in class marketing automation and integrate with the other best in class. So that's my stance on this whole Henry Ford quote. And I'd love to hear your thoughts. Maybe I'll tweet this out too to get a conversation going because it kills me every time someone says it. It rubs me the wrong way that it's it's touted as this, this big grandiose thing of I'm such an innovator, look at me. And it's like, no, you actually, yes, you did. You, you invented and you did innovate in the way that you solved customers' problems. But then don't go back and say, I didn't do anything customers were asking for because they were actually asking for a car. They just didn't know it. My next topic is post-exit thoughts. And I seem to be talking with a lot of founders these days who are considering selling their company, are in the process of selling their company, have sold their company, and are thinking through what they would do next or what to do next and what this all means. I'm not honestly sure 
why this is happening, if it's truly a wave or if it's just my experience of it right now. I know that I've, I talked about it maybe six episodes ago. I said, hey, if you're thinking about selling your company, just book a time on my calendar because I'm always happy to talk for 30 minutes. This is like a life-changing moment for better or worse. It's a pretty much undoable decision. And this is something I'm happy to, to talk to people. And I t- probably talked to four or five people over the next few weeks. But even over the prior year, I get, I'll say, an email or two per month of a founder who says, I'm in this boat and I'm either thinking about it, I'm in the process, or, or I've done it, what next? In addition, obviously, my investments, a lot of my angel investments have matured to the point where they are starting to have inbound acquisition interest. And tiny seed companies as well definitely receive kind of an, uh, it's just a, <laughs> you get accepted into an accelerator, you get some funding from a, a venture capitalist, and you're going to just certainly get offers for more funding and, and often start to have offers to be acquired. So this has been something on my mind. I've always been of the stance that Look, if you if you bootstrap or mostly bootstrap your company, you're in control. And if you want to run it forever, amazing. And if you want to throw off profits, amazing. A lot of people do that. A lot of people do it for a few years and then, you know, eventually they decide, well, I want my next act. Or they decide, if I sell it now, I can actually make 15 years of net profit you know, instantly that goes into my bank account. And what can I do with that? How does that change my life? And so you do see founders, you know, I thought back in the day, I thought Josh from Bear Metrics would run Bear Metrics forever. And I thought ADP and R might run Conversio forever. You know, there's certain people that you watch and they do exit and then they move on and they do really interesting things after that. So I don't take a stance that you should sell or shouldn't. It's not always or never. It really does come down to the situation you find yourself in. And honestly, if you get an amazing offer, it very well may be once in a lifetime. And that's the point where I find some founders in where they're getting an offer for 10 times revenue, you know, or 15 times revenue. And it's like, not saying that'll ever happen again, but you really need to grow this company and keep growing it and not write it over the top to ever see that dollar amount offered to you again. So with that said, Dan Norris and I talked a couple episodes ago about selling. And he and I actually have a difference of opinion on this, which I think is good. And I don't I don't think either of us are incorrect on this. I just think there's a lot of nuance to it. And there were some thoughts around these two topics. The first is, what would I do if I sold my company? And there's that question. And, and you know, back in the day, I remember Basecamp, DHH and Jason Fried saying, why would I ever sell? I don't know what I would do next. This is my life's work. And that's great. That's great for them. That's their opinion. I would just say, don't necessarily take that opinion as yours unless you've really thought about it. The most interesting people I know, or I'll say a lot of the most interesting people I know, they have a lot of creativity in them. They have a next thing. And even if you recall back to my conversation with Josh from Bear Metrics a few weeks ago, he's laser etching tweets on wood right now. And is that going to turn into his next company? Probably not. But is that something interesting for him to do for a while until he does figure out what that next thing is? Yeah. And in fact, I believe yesterday I saw a tweet from Josh already. And, you know, again, he and I chatted a month ago, maybe. He said, ah, I don't have anything. I'm not going to do software. I've been doing software for 15 years. I'm looking to do something else. Saw a tweet from him yesterday. I'm building another software product. He's building, it's like a personal finance or investing thing because he's kind of running into, you know, issues managing, not managing his money, but he obviously has a substantial amount of wealth now and that becomes complicated to manage and, and Google Docs doesn't always work. So what I found is that fear of what would I do if I sold my company? I wouldn't have anything to do. I might just sit around and play golf and drink all day. I might just curl up and die. Just knowing you, knowing the founders that I know in MicroConf, in MicroConf Connect, listeners of this podcast, people in, in Tiny Seed, the founders that I've run into and had conversations with over the years, what would you do? You'll probably do something really interesting. You probably will. And, and I feel like I don't necessarily want to equate it to a fixed mindset versus growth mindset because I do think that's pretty binary. If you have read that book by Carol Dweck called Mindset, It's about 
having the ability to see or learning the ability to see change and, and to become more comfortable with change and to learn that I can change. Like just because I can't do math today doesn't mean I can't learn it. Just because I don't have an idea today doesn't mean I can't come up with one. Just because I don't have the ability to be a great public speaker or a great writer today doesn't mean I can't work and change that. And I think there's, again, it's not exact, but I do think there's a little bit of that. It, it's this fear. I guess when I see, so I grew up in a family where a lot of the decisions were made based on fear. So my dad had and has clinical OCD, not the jokey OCD of I need everything to be on a table or I wash my hands. Like he had OCD so bad he didn't leave his bedroom for seven months when I was a senior in high school. And he lost like 80 pounds because he couldn't eat because of the compulsions. I mean, it was it was not a good show. I mean, it was a severe, severe mental illness. And the doctors who saw him said, you should be hospitalized. This is so bad. So you can imagine how that shaped my, my upbringing. There's a lot of fear involved. It's like an anxiety disorder, right? So there's a lot of fear involved in OCD. And that then became a mindset around everything. And it was always like the unknown is scary. And therefore you shouldn't do it because there are negative repercussions and only, you know, bad things can happen, blah, blah, blah. And I guess that that's how I feel a little bit about this is when I see fear as a mindset for any decision, I have to question if that's a good way to think about it. I'll caveat that with, of course, there are some things that truly are scary that you could, you can die climbing Mount Everest, or there are situations you can get yourself in where fear is good. They're dangerous and that, but let's, let's take these career decisions and founder decisions as, as not, not those things that are going to endanger my life. So in thinking about what would I do if I sold my company, I almost think if you're a creative driven, motivated person who has built a company or multiple companies or been launching things for a long time. Of course, there's luck involved, right? There's hard work, luck and skill involved with building this company. And maybe you do want to run it forever, but run it forever because you want to not because you're scared of what you'll do if you sell the company. If you still have work to do, you still have work to do in your space or in your app, or you're not done yet, by all means do that. But it it really does feel like if you're going to just avoid potential change or potential uncertainty, I'm just not sure that's the best way to live your life. Again, there are many reasons not to sell a company. I think what would I do if I sold it is not a great great reason. Now, granted, this comes from me, who every company I've sold, I've always had microconf going on. I have had this podcast going on. And I knew that when I sold Hittail, I was working on Drip and I sold apps before that. And I always had, I was writing a book, right? I built membership sites. I did all this stuff. And then when we sold Drip, I knew there was MicroConf in this podcast, figured I'd write another book, which I'm working on now. RobWalling.com, by the way, if you want to sign up to, to learn more about what I'm up to there. And I knew that there would be something. I started hacking PHP again, right after I sold Drip and I started tying into like stock trading APIs and crypto APIs. I never did anything with it, but I tooled around and it was fun. I hadn't written code in years and I found things to do with my time, right? And now, and now there's Tiny Seed. And what, what would I, what would it be like if I had said, what would I do if I sold Drip? You know, I'd still be running it. We wouldn't have sold it. And my guess is Derek being super ambitious and wanting to do new interesting things, he would have, you know, moved on and I wouldn't begrudge him that. And I feel like I made the right choice. And my, I'm not saying because I made the right choice with this end of one happened and, and now I'm super happy with, with what I built uh, means that everyone should. But my thought holds that, you know, using the thought of what would I do if I sold my company as a reason not to do it, in my mind, is a mistake. Let's cover another topic relating to selling. And it's this, well, it's really less about selling, I guess. It's more about this term, life-changing money. 
And something that I realized and felt, but had not heard words put to it until I interviewed Will Schroeder back six or eight months ago. He's the founder of startups.com. Something I felt, well, I remember the first time I had, honestly, even like $20,000 in my bank account. It was so much more money than I'd ever seen in a bank account. It was more money than, you know, I'm sure my parents had that money at some point, but we, I just remember drinking powdered milk as a kid. And, you know, I always had food to eat, but there was always this issue of, we, you know, we don't have, we can't do this because of the money, right? Or I can't do things that I wanted, basically. And that's why I started being an entrepreneur, to be honest, selling candy at a markup, selling comic books at school in order to, to get the things that I wanted. And I remember the first time I had 20000 or 50000 or $100,000 in the bank, it was this feeling of, wow, I have some safety now. Like, I can take time off if the world economy crashes, if a lot of bad things can happen and I'll still be okay. And to me, that was, that changed my life and it changed the way I was willing to take risks. Because when I had $1,000 in the bank and my rent was 700 bucks a month, I couldn't take many financial risks. But when I had 50 grand in the bank, could I spend $11,000 to buy .NET invoice back in 2006 or seven, whenever that happened? Could I do that? Well, yeah, I could take that risk because I knew I could replenish it. I knew it wouldn't bankrupt us. I knew you know, I wasn't taking out a loan. It allowed me to then take a risk that I then built up to, let's say, 40 grand in the bank. And then could I spend 30 grand to buy Hittail? It's a pretty big risk. But my life was changed by each of these moments. My life was changed both in the security of it and also in my risk tolerance increased to the point where I could make bigger bets and have a bigger impact. And Will Schroeder put this into words and he said, you know, I tell people that 250 grand in the bank is life-changing money when you didn't grow up rich. And I mean, I would even posit that 100 grand in the bank is enough for most people to take a year off or multiple years. It depends on where you live in the world, right? But, and when I say life-changing, I don't mean I go out and buy a Maserati or buy some ridiculous house. I just mean that it changes the way you think about your life and the risks you can take. Another way my life has changed is, is generosity. I mean, my wife and I have always done our best to use our resources for, for people. I mean, I've had friends who a grandparent was dying when Sherry was in grad school and they weren't able to afford to go see him and we're like, here's, here's 600 bucks for a plane ticket, you know? And that was the last time they, they saw their grandparent alive. And we've actually done that multiple times, to be honest. And that's one of those things where, you know, a few hundred dollars is just priceless in that instance, right? If you can do that. And in fact, we had someone, a friend came back Years later, I didn't even remember doing it, but they said that was like a life-changing moment for them because not only did they get to see the grandparent, but it occurred to them the generosity involved there and it wasn't the amount of money. They, they were kind of like, I should be more generous too. You know, it's just a, a fascinating thing. And so life-changing money for us has allowed us to be more generous in more ways to more people in, yeah, I'll say in bigger ways. So I guess all that to say that life-changing money I think can be different things to different people. And, you know, look, if, if you grew up in an awesome middle class, like suburban, middle or upper class or whatever, then maybe maybe you didn't have the fears that I have, you know, of going broke or of, of not making your rent. Life-changing money can mean different things to different people. And if your upbringing was great and you have a fallback, you know, and your parents will bail you out or whatever, or you have friends and family money, which is this whole other expression, maybe I'll have time to go into it today or maybe another, but then maybe 50 grand in the bank isn't that big of a deal to you. But to me, and I think to most people, there does hit a point where your ability to be generous, your ability to solve problems and make them go away, your ability to, to take bigger risks really ramps up 
the more money you have. And I'm not saying it's a quest for money so you can do all these things, but there are certain notches. I mean, I, I do tend to disagree with the the survey. You know, you kind of hear about it around of like, hey, if you make more than 70K a year, then it's really incremental how, how much better, how much more you enjoy your life or how much happier you are. That hasn't been the case for me. Nothing gives me more joy than to have the resources to then be able to to put into these these startups. And I mean, if you think about it, startups and these small companies, you know, these one to 10 to 30 person companies are what really drives the American economy, right? That's where the majority of the hiring comes from. That's where, I mean, I, I see that it has been the future and I continue to see it as a future, especially as companies get bigger and bigger and bigger, they're less fun to work for and the freelancer economy and the gig economy and and startups, I just think are, they're just up and to the right. And it's, I'm, I'm all in on that, right? So for me, my life has changed at, at every step along the way, right? At the time when I had $2,000 of side income from a software product while I was working, consulting the day job. And then the moment I quit that day job and it made full product income in 2008 or nine. And so it was at, yeah, 13 years ago to that moment when, you know, Hittail, which was the product that then made two or three times, you know, in a month, more than I had ever made in a month before. And that was a life changing moment, you know, on and on and on. Each of these things have been such incredible steps along the way. And, you know, again, that's something Dan Norris and I talked about at the arrival fallacy. It's like, well, I never arrived in terms of, oh, I'm here and now I'm going to be happy forever. But that's not what I'm here for. What makes me happy forever is being creative and being able to work on what I want when I want to. Having that control is something I wouldn't have had 20 years ago when I was coding, you know, as a W2 employee and then as a consultant. And then even once when I was working on my own products, there was this fear. I, ha I had control, but there was this fear of which of these is going to get squashed. And frankly, most of them eventually did, you know, whether it was after I sold them or while I was running them. I mean, a lot of them got squashed by Google or got squashed by a competitor or AdWords stopped working. And so while I had it, there was, I needed that next step, the next step. And, you know, that was, that was the drive. And so I don't mind the arrival fallacy. You know, I don't kid myself anymore to think, oh, I have arrived and I'm going to be happy forever. But I do think, this is great and it feels great to be here. And what's what's next? You know, maybe I take a month off or maybe I take six months off like I did after I left Drip between Drip and and launching or announcing Tiny Seed was six months. I'll be honest, it was only about two or three months till Aynar and I, you know, started talking and kind of mapping it out and all that. But all that said, you know, none of that would have been possible without that life-changing money. And again, whether life-changing is 20K, 50K, or whether it's a million, your life is different at each of those milestones. My next topic is something I've talked about in passing on the podcast, usually with a guest. Just want to put it down for you here to think about, and it's about funnels. And there's obviously low to no touch funnels. There's high touch funnels. Something I'm seeing that's fascinating and the really quick growth that I'm seeing in a lot of my investments and companies that I advise are these dual funnels. It's where you have that really wide funnel low touch, no touch. So you can imagine, say, Castos, which is podcast hosting, or you can imagine DocSketch, which is e-signatures, right? Competes with DocuSign. And it's a very wide market and it's a very large funnel and you get a lot of leads in and it's lower priced, right? DocSketch is 10 bucks per user and Castos, I believe, is $19 for their lowest plan. On the flip side, you might have an app that is high touch. So David Heller's ReMB for example, is, I don't remember what the pricing is, 500 a month and up, I believe. So this is a high-touch funnel, mid-market to enterprise sales, as we would call it. But the companies that I'm seeing that are really crushing it have both. It's really interesting because the the wide 
funnel with a low lower end price point, it allows a lot of people to use it. It allows it to spread via word of mouth and it gives you a brand because when you have a thousand versus five thousand versus ten thousand people who are using and paying for an app, you're just kind of everywhere. And that's amazing. Then if on top of that, you then also have that high touch, high price funnel where enterprises are coming to you saying, I need an enterprise version of that. And you've heard it if you've listened to either of Craig's podcasts. He has one called Seeking Scale that I really enjoy he, that he does with Andy Baldacci. And then there's Rogue Startups, but he's talking about how there's a higher end funnel in private podcasting. And if you go to castos.com right now, you'll see they talk about podcast hosting and private podcasting. Are, are the, those are in the marquee. They're in the H1. And you can imagine that this funnel is really powerful because of exactly what I've said is the way these two play into each other. Similar with an e-signature app, you can imagine this, you know, I've already talked about the, the low-touch end of it, but, well, aren't there enterprises out there? You know, what if you're a mortgage worker or realty or do a lot of sales or whatever and you need 5,000 docs a month, right, or 10,000 docs a month? That would be that high-touch, high-end, expensive, top part of the dual funnel. And so the takeaway here is dual funnels are really interesting and it's something that I, we had it with Drip, not to this extent. So we obviously had the really wide funnel on the lower end starting at 49. I think even better, I mean, you know, if we had, had been able to have like a $19 plan, that would have been cool. And then we had folks in the 500 to, I forget what the top end was by the time I left, but it was definitely in the four, low four figures, you know, per month. It wasn't to the extent some of these, these dual funnels I'm seeing in terms of, of the top end, but we had it. I just didn't necessarily recognize it. And I didn't realize how powerful it was. And realistically, what often happens in this case is that when you get this dual funnel, in the early days, the low touch or no touch funnel winds up being the majority of your revenue as you're getting started because you don't have the logos and you don't have the user base. But as you start getting the higher end users in, the more expensive enterprise folks, they become more and more and more higher percentage of your revenue base. And that, of course, is when, when you're growing on both fronts and you have that brand. That's when growth is accelerated dramatically. That's it for this week's solo episode. I hope you enjoyed it. You can certainly let me know in the comments or you can tweet me at Rob Walling if we're not connected on Twitter. Let's do it. As always, you can find detailed show notes at startupsfortherestofus.com. This is episode 541. And if you want even more detailed show notes, sign up for the mailing list, startupsfortherestofus.com. Enter your email. We send out a weekly email where my assistant producer, Aaron, does a fantastic job of doing timestamps with topics and bullets. And it's even more in-depth than what we release to the public on the website. As always, thank you for joining me this week, and I'll be back in your earbuds next Tuesday morning.